This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser Preface the primary aim of this book is to explain the remarkable rule which regulated the succession to the priesthood of Diana at Aricia. When I first set myself to solve the problem more than thirty years ago, I thought that the solution could be propounded very briefly, but I soon found that to render it probable or even intelligible it was necessary to discuss certain more general questions, some of which had hardly been broached before. In successive editions, the discussion of these and kindred topics has occupied more and more space. The inquiry has branched out in more and more directions, until the two volumes of the original work have expanded into twelve. Meantime, a wish has often been expressed that the book should be issued in a more compendious form. This abridgment is an attempt to meet the wish, and thereby to bring the work within the range of a wider circle of readers. While the bulk of the book has been greatly reduced, I have endeavoured to retain its leading principles, together with an amount of evidence sufficient to illustrate them clearly. The language of the original has also for the most part been preserved, though here and there the exposition has been somewhat condensed. In order to keep as much of the text as possible, I have sacrificed all the notes, and with them all exact references to my authorities. Readers who desire to ascertain the source of any particular statement must therefore consult the larger work, which is fully documented and provided with a complete bibliography. In the abridgment I have neither added new matter nor altered the views expressed in the last edition, for the evidence which has come to my knowledge in the meantime has on the whole served either to confirm my former conclusions or to furnish fresh illustrations of old principles. Thus, for example, on the crucial question of the practice of putting kings to death, either at the end of a fixed period or whenever their health and strength began to fail, the body of evidence which points to the wide prevalence of such a custom has been considerably augmented in the interval. A striking instance of a limited monarchy of this sort is furnished by the powerful medieval kingdom of the Khazars in southern Russia, where the kings were liable to be put to death either on the expiry of a set term, or whenever some public calamity, such as drought, dearth, or defeat in war, seem to indicate a failure of their natural powers. The evidence for the systematic killing of the Khazar kings, drawn from the accounts of old Arab travellers, has been collected by me elsewhere. Africa, again, has supplied several fresh examples of a similar practice of regicide. Among them the most notable, perhaps, is the custom formerly observed in Bunyoro, of choosing every year from a particular clan a mock king, who was supposed to incarnate the late king, cohabited with his widows at his temple tomb, and after reigning for a week was strangled. The custom presents a close parallel to the ancient Babylonian festival of the Sakia, at which a mock king was dressed in the royal robes, allowed to enjoy the real king's concubines, and after reigning for five days was stripped, scourged, and put to death. 
that festival in its turn has lately received fresh light from certain Assyrian inscriptions, which seem to confirm the interpretation which I formerly gave of the festival as a New Year celebration and the parent of the Jewish festival of Purim. Other recently discovered parallels to the priestly kings of Arikia are African priests and kings who used to be put to death at the end of seven or of two years after being liable in the interval to be attacked and killed by a strong man who thereupon succeeded to the priesthood or the kingdom. With these and other instances of like customs before us, it is no longer possible to regard the rule of succession to the priesthood of Diana at Arikia as exceptional. It clearly exemplifies a widespread institution, of which the most numerous and the most similar cases have thus far been found in Africa. How far the facts point to an early influence of Africa on Italy, or even to the existence of an African population in southern Europe, I do not presume to say. The prehistoric relations between the two continents are still obscure, and still under investigation. Whether the explanation which I have offered of the institution is correct or not must be left to the future to determine. I shall always be ready to abandon it, if a better can be suggested. Meantime, in committing the book in its new form to the judgment of the public, I desire to guard against a misapprehension of its scope which appears to be still rife, though I have sought to correct it before now. If in the present work I have dwelt at some length on the worship of trees, it is not, I trust, because I exaggerate its importance in the history of religion, still less because I would deduce from it a whole system of mythology. It is simply because I could not ignore the subject in attempting to explain the significance of a priest who bore the title of King of the Wood, and one of whose titles to office was the plucking of a bough, the golden bough, from a tree in the sacred grove but I am so far from regarding the reverence for trees as of supreme importance for the evolution of religion, that I consider it to have been altogether subordinate to other factors, and in particular to the fear of the human dead, which on the whole I believe to have been probably the most powerful force in the making of primitive religion. I hope that after this explicit disclaimer I shall no longer be taxed with embracing a system of mythology which I look upon not merely as false, but as preposterous and absurd. But I am too familiar with the hydra of error to expect that by lopping off one of the monster's heads I can prevent another, or even the same, from sprouting again. I can only trust to the candour and intelligence of my readers to rectify this serious misconception of my views by a comparison with my own express declaration. J. G. Fraser, 1. Brick Court, Temple, London, June, 1922 Chapter 1 The King of the Wood 1. Diana and Virbius Who does not know Turner's picture of the golden bough? The scene, suffused with the golden glow of imagination, in which the divine mind of Turner steeped and transfigured even the fairest natural landscape, is a dreamlike vision of the little woodland lake of Nemi, Diana's mirror, as it was called by the ancients. No one who has seen that calm water, lapped in a green hollow of the Alban hills, can ever forget it. The two characteristic Italian villages which slumber on its banks, and the equally Italian palace, 
whose terraced gardens descend steeply to the lake, hardly break the stillness and even the solitariness of the scene. Diana herself might still linger by this lonely shore, still haunt those woodlands wild. In antiquity, this sylvan landscape was the scene of a strange and recurring tragedy. On the northern shore of the lake, right under the precipitous cliffs on which the modern village of Nemi is perched, stood the sacred grove and sanctuary of Diana Nemorensis, or Diana of the Wood. The lake and the grove were sometimes known as the lake and grove of Aricia, but the town of Aricia, the modern Laricia, was situated about three miles off, at the foot of the Alban Mount, and separated by a steep descent from the lake, which lies in a small crater-like hollow on the mountainside. In this sacred grove there grew a certain tree, round which at any time of the day, and probably far into the night, a grim figure might be seen to prowl. In his hand he carried a drawn sword, and he kept peering warily about him, as if at every instant he expected to be set upon by an enemy. He was a priest and a murderer, and the man for whom he looked was sooner or later to murder him and hold the priesthood in his stead. Such was the rule of the sanctuary. A candidate for the priesthood could only succeed to office by slaying the priest, and having slain him, he retained office till he was himself slain by a stronger or craftier. The post which he held by this precarious tenure carried with it the title of king, but surely no crowned head ever lay uneasier or was visited by more evil dreams than his. For year in, year out, in summer and winter, in fair weather and in foul, he had to keep his lonely watch, and whenever he snatched a troubled slumber it was at the peril of his life. The least relaxation of his vigilance, the smallest abatement of his strength of limb or skill of fence, put him in jeopardy. Grey hairs might seal his death warrant. To gentle and pious pilgrims at the shrine, the sight of him might well seem to darken the fair landscape, as when a cloud suddenly blots the sun on a bright day. The dreamy blue of Italian skies, the dappled shade of summer woods, and the sparkle of waves in the sun can have accorded but ill with that stern and sinister figure. Rather, we picture to ourselves the scene as it may have been witnessed by a belated wayfarer on one of those wild autumn nights when the dead leaves are falling thick and the wind seem to sing the dirge of the dying year. It is a sombre picture set to melancholy music the background of forest showing black and jagged against a lowering and stormy sky, the sighing of the wind in the branches, the rustle of the withered leaves underfoot, the lapping of the cold water on the shore, and in the foreground, pacing to and fro, now in twilight and now in gloom, a dark figure with a glitter of steel at the shoulder whenever the pale moon, riding clear of the cloud-rack, peers down at him through the matted boughs. The strange rule of this priesthood has no parallel in classical antiquity, and cannot be explained from it. To find an explanation, we must go further afield. No one will probably deny that such a custom savours of a barbarous age, and surviving into imperial times, stands out in striking isolation from the polished Italian society of the day, 
like a primeval rock rising from a smooth-shaven lawn. It is the very rudeness and barbarity of the custom which allow us a hope of explaining it, for recent researches into the early history of man have revealed the essential similarity with which, under many superficial differences, the human mind has elaborated its first crude philosophy of life. Accordingly, if we can show that a barbarous custom, like that of the priesthood of Nemi, has existed elsewhere, if we can detect the motives which led to its institution, if we can prove that these motives have operated widely, perhaps universally, in human society, producing in varied circumstances a variety of institutions specifically different but generically alike, if we can show, lastly, that these very motives, with some of their derivative institutions, were actually at work in classical antiquity, then we may fairly infer that at a remoter age the same motives gave birth to the priesthood of Nemi. Such an inference, in default of direct evidence as to how the priesthood did actually arise, can never amount to demonstration. But it will be more or less probable, according to the degree of completeness with which it fulfils the conditions I have indicated. The object of this book is, by meeting these conditions, to offer a fairly probable explanation of the priesthood of Nemi. I begin by setting forth the few facts and legends which have come down to us on the subject. According to one story, the worship of Diana at Nemi was instituted by Orestes, who, after killing Thoas, king of the Tauric Chersonese, the Crimea, fled with his sister to Italy, bringing with him the image of the Tauric Diana hidden in a faggot of sticks. After his death, his bones were transported from Aricia to Rome, and buried in front of the Temple of Saturn, on the Capitoline Slope, beside the Temple of Concord. The bloody ritual, which legend described to the Tauric Diana, is familiar to classical readers. It is said that every stranger who landed on the shore was sacrificed on her altar. But transported to Italy, the rite assumed a milder form. Within the sanctuary at Nemi grew a certain tree, of which no branch might be broken. Only a runaway slave was allowed to break off, if he could, one of its boughs. Success in the attempt entitled him to fight the priest in single combat, and if he slew him, he reigned in his stead with the title of King of the Wood, Rex Nemorensis. According to the public opinion of the ancients, the fateful branch was that golden bough which, at the Sibyl's bidding, Aeneas plucked before he essayed the perilous journey to the world of the dead. The flight of the slave represented, it was said, the flight of Orestes. His combat with the priest was a reminiscence of the human sacrifices once offered to the Tauric Diana. This rule of succession by the sword was observed down to imperial times. For amongst his other freaks, Caligula, thinking that the priest of Nemi had held office too long, hired a more stalwart ruffian to slay him and a Greek traveller, who visited Italy in the age of the Antonines, remarks that down to his time the priesthood was still the prize of victory in a single combat. Of the worship of Diana at Nemi, some leading features can still be made out. From the votive offerings which have been found on the site, it appears that she was conceived of especially as a huntress, and further as blessing men and women with offspring and granting expectant mothers an easy delivery. 
Again, fire seems to have played a foremost part in her ritual. For, during her annual festival, held on the 13th of August, at the hottest time of the year, her grove shone with a multitude of torches, whose ruddy glare was reflected by the lake, and throughout the length and breadth of Italy the day was kept with holy rites at every domestic hearth. Bronze statuettes found in her precinct represent the goddess herself holding a torch in her raised right hand, and women whose prayers had been heard by her came crowned with wreaths and bearing lighted torches to the sanctuary in fulfilment of their vows. Someone unknown dedicated a perpetually burning lamp in a little shrine at Nemi for the safety of the Emperor Claudius and his family. The terracotta lamps, which have been discovered in the grove, may perhaps have served a like purpose for humbler persons. If so, the analogy of the custom to the Catholic practice of dedicating holy candles in churches would be obvious. Further, the title of Vesta, borne by Diana at Nemi, points clearly to the maintenance of a perpetual holy fire in her sanctuary. A large circular basement at the northeast corner of the temple, raised on three steps and bearing traces of a mosaic pavement, probably supported a round temple of Diana in her character of Vesta, like the round temple of Vesta in the Roman Forum. Here the sacred fire would seem to have been tended by Vestal virgins, for the head of a Vestal in terracotta was found on the spot, and the worship of a perpetual fire, cared for by holy maidens, appears to have been common in Latium from the earliest to the latest times. Further, at the annual festival of the goddess, hunting dogs were crowned and wild beasts were not molested. Young people went through a purificatory ceremony in her honour, wine was brought forth, and the feast consisted of a kid, cakes served piping hot on plates of leaves, and apples still hanging in clusters on the boughs. But Diana did not reign alone in her grove at Nemi. Two lesser divinities shared her forest sanctuary. One was Egeria, the nymph of the clear water, which, bubbling from the basaltic rocks, used to fall in graceful cascades into the lake at the place called Lemole, because here were established the mills of the modern village of Nemi. The purling of the stream as it ran over the pebbles is mentioned by Ovid, who tells us that he had often drunk of its waters. Women with child used to sacrifice to Egeria, because she was believed, like Diana, to be able to grant them an easy delivery. Tradition ran that the nymph had been the wife or mistress of the wise king Numa, that he had consorted with her in the secrecy of the sacred grove, and that the laws which he gave the Romans had been inspired by communion with her divinity. Plutarch compares the legend with other tales of the loves of goddesses for mortal men, such as the love of Cybele and the moon for the fair youths Attis and Endymion. According to some, the trysting place of the lovers was not in the woods of Nemi, but in a grove outside the dripping Porta Capena at Rome, where another sacred spring of Egeria gushed from a dark cavern. Every day the Roman Vestals fetched water from this spring to wash the temple of Vesta, carrying it in earthenware pitchers on their heads. In Juvenal's time the natural rock had been encased in marble, and the hallowed spot was profaned by gangs of poor Jews, who were suffered to squat like gypsies in the grove. 
we may suppose that the spring which fell into the lake of Nemi was the true original Egeria, and that when the first settlers moved down from the Alban hills to the banks of the Tiber, they brought the nymph with them, and found a new home for her in a grove outside the gates. The remains of baths which have been discovered within the sacred precinct, together with many terracotta models of various parts of the human body, suggest that the waters of Egeria were used to heal the sick, who may have signified their hopes, or testified their gratitude, by dedicating likenesses of the diseased members to the goddess, in accordance with a custom which is still observed in many parts of Europe. To this day it would seem that the spring retains medicinal virtues. The other of the minor deities at Nemi was Virbius. Legend had it that Virbius was the young Greek hero Hippolytus, chaste and fair, who learnt the art of venery from the centre Chiron, and spent all his days in the greenwood chasing wild beasts with the virgin huntress Artemis, the Greek counterpart of Diana, for his only comrade. Proud of her divine society, he spurned the love of women, and this proved his bane. For Aphrodite, stung by his scorn, inspired his stepmother Phaedra with a love of him, and when he disdained her wicked advances, she falsely accused him to his father Theseus. The slander was believed, and Theseus prayed to his sire Poseidon to avenge the imagined wrong. So, while Hippolytus drove in a chariot by the shore of the Saronic Gulf, the sea-god sent a fierce bull forth from the waves. The terrified horses bolted, threw Hippolytus from the chariot, and dragged him at their hooves to death. But Diana, for the love she bore Hippolytus, persuaded the leech Aesculapius to bring her fair young hunter back to life by his simples. Jupiter, indignant that a mortal man should return from the gates of death, thrust down the meddling leech himself to Hades. But Diana hid her favourite from the angry god in a thick cloud, disguised his features by adding years to his life, and then bore him far away to the dells of Nemi, where she entrusted him to the nymph Egeria, to live there unknown and solitary, under the name of Virbius, in the depth of the Italian forest. There he reigned a king, and there he dedicated a precinct to Diana. He had a comely son, Virbius, who, undaunted by his father's fate, drove a team of fiery steeds to join the Latins in the war against Aeneas and the Trojans. Virbius was worshipped as a god not only at Nemi, but elsewhere, for in Campania we hear of a special priest devoted to his service. Horses were excluded from the Arician grove and sanctuary because horses had killed Hippolytus. It was unlawful to touch his image. Some thought that he was the son. But the truth is, says Servius, that he is a deity associated with Diana, as Attis is associated with the mother of the gods, and Erichthonius with Minerva, and Adonis with Venus. What the nature of that association was, we shall inquire presently. Here it is worth observing that in his long and chequered career, this mythical personage has displayed a remarkable tenacity of life, for we can hardly doubt that the Saint Hippolytus of the Roman calendar, who was dragged by horses to death on the 13th of August, Diana's own day, is no other than the Greek hero of the same name, who after dying twice over as a heathen sinner, has been happily resuscitated as a Christian saint. 
It needs no elaborate demonstration to convince us that the stories told to account for Diana's worship at Nemi are unhistorical. Clearly they belong to that large class of myths which are made up to explain the origin of a religious ritual and have no other foundation than the resemblance, real or imaginary, which may be traced between it and some foreign ritual. The incongruity of these Nemi myths is indeed transparent, since the foundation of the worship is traced now to Orestes and now to Hippolytus, according as this or that feature of the ritual has to be accounted for. The real value of such tales is that they serve to illustrate the nature of the worship by providing a standard with which to compare it, and further, that they bear witness indirectly to its venerable age by showing that the true origin was lost in the mists of a fabulous antiquity. In the latter respect, these Nemi legends are probably more to be trusted than the apparently historical tradition vouched for by Cato the Elder, that the sacred grove was dedicated to Diana by a certain Egerius Bibius, or Livius, of Tusculum, a Latin dictator, on behalf of the peoples of Tusculum, Aricia, Lanuvium, Laurentum, Cora, Tibor, Pometia, and Ardea. This tradition, indeed, speaks for the great age of the sanctuary, since it seems to date its foundation sometime before 495 BC, the year in which Pometia was sacked by the Romans and disappears from history. But we cannot suppose that so barbarous a rule as that of the Arician priesthood was deliberately instituted by a league of civilized communities such as the Latin cities undoubtedly were. It must have been handed down from a time beyond the memory of man, when Italy was still in a far ruder state than any known to us in the historical period. The credit of the tradition is rather shaken than confirmed by another story, which ascribes the foundation of the sanctuary to a certain Manius Egerius, who gave rise to the saying, There are many manii at Aricia. This proverb some explained by alleging that Manius Egerius was the ancestor of a long and distinguished line, whereas others thought it meant that there were many ugly and deformed people at Aricia, and they derived the name Manius from Mania, a bogey or bugbear to frighten children. A Roman satirist uses the name Manius as typical of the beggars who lay in wait for pilgrims on the Arician slopes. These differences of opinion, together with the discrepancy between Manius Egerius of Aricia and Egerius Livius of Tusculum, as well as the resemblance of both names to the mythical Egeria, excite our suspicion. Yet the tradition recorded by Cato seems too circumstantial, and its sponsor too respectable, to allow us to dismiss it as an idle fiction. Rather, we may suppose that it refers to some ancient restoration or reconstruction of the sanctuary, which was actually carried out by the Confederate States. At any rate, it testifies to a belief that the grove had been from early times a common place of worship for many of the oldest cities of the country, if not for the whole Latin Confederacy. 2. Artemis and Hippolytus I have said that the Arician legends of Orestes and Hippolytus, though worthless as history, have a certain value, in so far as they may help us to understand the worship at Nemi better by comparing it with the ritual and myths of other sanctuaries. We must ask ourselves, why did the authors of these legends pitch upon Orestes and Hippolytus in order to explain Virbius and the King of the Wood? 
In regard to Orestes, the answer is obvious. He and the image of the Tauric Diana, which could only be appeased with human blood, were dragged in to render intelligible the murderous rule of succession to the Arician priesthood. In regard to Hippolytus, the case is not so plain. The manner of his death suggests readily enough a reason for the exclusion of horses from the grove, but this by itself seems hardly enough to account for the identification. We must try to probe deeper by examining the worship as well as the legend or myth of Hippolytus. He had a famous sanctuary at his ancestral home of Troisine, situated on that beautiful, almost landlocked bay, where groves of oranges and lemons, with tall cypresses soaring like dark spires above the garden of the Hesperides, now clothe the strip of fertile shore at the foot of the rugged mountains. Across the blue water of the tranquil bay, which it shelters from the open sea, rises Poseidon's sacred island, its peaks veiled in the sombre green of the pines. On this fair coast Hippolytus was worshipped. Within his sanctuary stood a temple with an ancient image. His service was performed by a priest who held office for life. Every year a sacrificial festival was held in his honour, and his untimely fate was yearly mourned with weeping and doleful chants by unwedded maidens. Youths and maidens dedicated locks of their hair in his temple before marriage. His grave existed at Troisine, though the people would not show it. It has been suggested, with great plausibility, that in the handsome Hippolytus, beloved of Artemis, cut off in his youthful prime, and yearly mourned by damsels, we have one of those mortal lovers of a goddess, who appear so often in ancient religion, and of whom Adonis is the most familiar type. The rivalry of Artemis and Phaedra for the affection of Hippolytus reproduces, it is said, under different names, the rivalry of Aphrodite and Proserpine for the love of Adonis, for Phaedra is merely a double of Aphrodite. The theory probably does no injustice either to Hippolytus or to Artemis, for Artemis was originally a great goddess of fertility, and on the principles of early religion she who fertilizes nature must herself be fertile and to be that, she must necessarily have a male consort. On this view, Hippolytus was the consort of Artemis of Troisine, and the shorn tresses offered to him by the Troisenian youths and maidens before marriage were designed to strengthen his union with the goddess, and so promote the fruitfulness of the earth, of cattle, and of mankind. It is some confirmation of this view, that within the precinct of Hippolytus at Troisine, there were worshipped two female powers named Damia and Auxesia, whose connection with the fertility of the ground is unquestionable. When Epidorus suffered from a dearth, the people, in obedience to an oracle, carved images of Damia and Auxesia out of sacred olive wood, and no sooner had they done so, and set them up, than the earth bore fruit again. Moreover, at Troisine itself, and apparently within the precinct of Hippolytus, a curious festival of stone-throwing was held in honour of these maidens, as the Troisinians called them. And it is easy to show that similar customs have been practised in many lands for the express purpose of ensuring good crops. In the story of the tragic death of the youthful Hippolytus, we may discern an analogy with similar tales of other fair but mortal youths who paid with their lives for the brief rapture of the love of an immortal goddess. These hapless lovers, 
were probably not always mere myths, and the legends which traced their spilt blood in the purple bloom of the violet, the scarlet stain of the anemone, or the crimson flush of the rose, were no idle poetic emblems of youth and beauty fleeting as the summer flowers. Such fables contain a deeper philosophy of the relation of the life of man to the life of nature, a sad philosophy which gave birth to a tragic practice. What that philosophy and that practice were, we shall learn later on. 3. Recapitulation We can now perhaps understand why the ancients identified Hippolytus, the consort of Artemis, with Virbius, who, according to Servius, stood to Diana as Adonis to Venus, or Attis to the mother of the gods. For Diana, like Artemis, was a goddess of fertility in general, and of childbirth in particular. As such, she, like her Greek counterpart, needed a male partner. That partner, if Servius is right, was Virbius. In his character of the founder of the sacred grove and first king of Nemi, Virbius is clearly the mythical predecessor or archetype of the line of priests who served Diana under the title of kings of the wood, and who came, like him, one after the other, to a violent end. It is natural, therefore, to conjecture that they stood to the goddess of the grove in the same relation in which Virbius stood to her. In short, that the mortal king of the wood had for his queen the woodland Diana herself. If the sacred tree which he guarded with his life was supposed, as seems probable, to be her special embodiment, her priest may not only have worshipped it as his goddess, but embraced it as his wife. There is at least nothing absurd in the supposition, since even in the time of Pliny, a noble Roman used thus to treat a beautiful beech tree in another sacred grove of Diana on the Alban hills. He embraced it, he kissed it, he lay under its shadow, he poured wine on its trunk. Apparently he took the tree for the goddess. The custom of physically marrying men and women to trees is still practised in India and other parts of the East. Why should it not have obtained in ancient Latium? Reviewing the evidence as a whole, we may conclude that the worship of Diana in her sacred grove at Nemi was of great importance and immemorial antiquity, that she was revered as the goddess of woodlands and of wild creatures, probably also of domestic cattle and of the fruits of the earth, that she was believed to bless men and women with offspring and to aid mothers in childbed, that her holy fire, tended by chaste virgins, burnt perpetually in a round temple within the precinct, that associated with her was a water-nymph, Egeria, who discharged one of Diana's own functions by succouring women in travail, and who was popularly supposed to have mated with an old Roman king in the sacred grove. Further, that Diana of the Wood herself had a male companion, Virbius by name, who was to her what Adonis was to Venus, or Attis to Cybele, and lastly, that this mythical Virbius was represented in historical times by a line of priests known as kings of the wood, who regularly perished by the swords of their successors, and whose lives were in a manner bound up with a certain tree in the grove, because so long as that tree was uninjured they were safe from attack. Clearly these conclusions do not of themselves suffice to explain the peculiar rule of succession to the priesthood, but perhaps the survey of a wider field may lead us to think that they contain in germ the solution of the problem. To that wider survey, 
we must now address ourselves. It will be long and laborious, but may possess something of the interest and charm of a voyage of discovery, in which we shall visit many strange foreign lands, with strange foreign peoples, and still stranger customs. The wind is in the shrouds, we shake out our sails to it, and leave the coast of Italy behind us for a time. CHAPTER Two, PRIESTLY KINGS The questions which we have set ourselves to answer are mainly two. First, why had Diana's priest at Nemi, the king of the wood, to slay his predecessor? Second, why before doing so had he to pluck the branch of a certain tree which the public opinion of the ancients identified with Virgil's golden bough? The first point on which we fasten is the priest's title. Why was he called the king of the wood? Why was his office spoken of as a kingdom? The union of a royal title with priestly duties was common in ancient Italy and Greece. At Rome, and in other cities of Latium, there was a priest called the sacrificial king, or king of the sacred rites, and his wife bore the title of queen of the sacred rites. In Republican Athens, the second annual magistrate of the state was called the king, and his wife the queen. The functions of both were religious. Many other Greek democracies had titular kings, whose duties, so far as they are known, seem to have been priestly, and to have centred round the common hearth of the state. Some Greek states had several of these titular kings, who held office simultaneously. At Rome, the tradition was that the sacrificial king had been appointed after the abolition of the monarchy, in order to offer the sacrifices which before had been offered by the kings. A similar view as to the origin of the priestly kings appears to have prevailed in Greece. In itself the opinion is not improbable, and it is borne out by the example of Sparta, almost the only purely Greek state which retained the kingly form of government in historical times. For in Sparta all state sacrifices were offered by the kings as descendants of the god. One of the two Spartan kings held the priesthood of Zeus Lacedaemon, the other the priesthood of heavenly Zeus. This combination of priestly functions with royal authority is familiar to everyone. Asia Minor, for example, was the seat of various great religious capitals peopled by thousands of sacred slaves and ruled by pontiffs who wielded at once temporal and spiritual authority, like the popes of medieval Rome. Such priest-ridden cities were Zella and Pessinus. Teutonic kings, again, in the old heathen days, seem to have stood in the position and to have exercised the powers of high priests. The emperors of China offered public sacrifices, the details of which were regulated by the ritual books. The king of Madagascar was high priest of the realm. At the great festival of the new year, when a bullock was sacrificed for the good of the kingdom, the king stood over the sacrifice to offer prayer and thanksgiving, while his attendants slaughtered the animal. In the monarchical states which still maintain their independence amongst the galas of eastern Africa, the king sacrifices on the mountain tops and regulates the immolation of human victims, and the dim light of tradition reveals a similar union of temporal and spiritual power, of royal and priestly duties, in the kings of that delightful region of Central America, whose ancient capital, now buried under the rank growth of the tropical forest, is marked by the stately and mysterious ruins of Palenque. 
When we have said that the ancient kings were commonly priests also, we are far from having exhausted the religious aspect of their office. In those days the divinity that hedges a king was no empty form of speech, but the expression of a sober belief. Kings were revered, in many cases not merely as priests, that is, as intercessors between man and God, but as themselves gods, able to bestow upon their subjects and worshippers those blessings which are commonly supposed to be beyond the reach of mortals, and are sought, if at all, only by prayer and sacrifice offered to superhuman and invisible beings. Thus kings are often expected to give rain and sunshine in due season, to make the crops grow, and so on. Strange as this expectation appears to us, it is quite of a piece with early modes of thought. A savage hardly conceives the distinction commonly drawn by more advanced peoples between the natural and the supernatural. To him the world is to a great extent worked by supernatural agents, that is, by personal beings acting on impulses and motives like his own, liable like him to be moved by appeals to their pity, their hopes and their fears. In a world so conceived, he sees no limit to his powers of influencing the course of nature to his own advantage. Prayers, promises or threats may secure him fine weather and an abundant crop from the gods, and if a god should happen, as he sometimes believes, to become incarnate in his own person, then he need appeal to no higher being. He, the savage, possesses in himself all the powers necessary to further his own well-being and that of his fellow men. This is one way in which the idea of a man-god is reached. But there is another. Along with the view of the world as pervaded by spiritual forces, savage man has a different and probably still older conception in which we may detect a germ of the modern notion of natural law or the view of nature as a series of events occurring in an invariable order without the intervention of personal agency. The germ of which I speak is involved in that sympathetic magic, as it may be called, which plays a large part in most systems of superstition. In early society, the king is frequently a magician as well as a priest. Indeed, he appears to have often attained to power by virtue of his supposed proficiency in the black or white art. Hence, in order to understand the evolution of the kingship and the sacred character with which the office has commonly been invested in the eyes of savage or barbarous peoples, it is essential to have some acquaintance with the principles of magic and to form some conception of the extraordinary hold which that ancient system of superstition has had on the human mind in all ages and all countries. Accordingly, I propose to consider the subject in some detail. End of chapter 2